If you have elementary age kids or younger, we'd love them to be a part of what we have happening in our Vine Kids time. Miss Barbara is coming around. They're heading out that door there. We'd love for your kiddos to uh, be part of that great ministry. It's a fun Sunday. It's fun to see what, how God is growing our young little community, um, how this sort of idea that happened in the hearts of a few of us several years ago that God has given this sort of full-fledged movement to, and that we've become this church that is wrapped up in its growth and its families, and, and not just our young families, but, but really trying to reach people with the gospel. And in the book of John, what, we're, what we are in is really a picture of that. It's a picture of, of Jesus so in love with creation that he steps into it, that he literally becomes human to come and redeem and save us. It's why we exist as a church. We exist to be out there in the cracks and crevices of culture, taking this gospel message to the world. And it's what we're going to be talking a little bit about this morning. We, we are actually into week four in a journey that we began four weeks ago. And we have started the book of John. Now, though you've been with, those of you that have been with us for a little while, you know this is sort of how I like to teach. I love to teach through Scripture. We like to look at pieces of text in its entirety. Uh, we don't really move topically through things. I, I really want you to engage God's Word. And so we've studied all kinds of books. We just got through about two and a half years of the book of Acts, and, and we started the book of John. The book of John is completely Different because it's not about uh, stories or geography or um, about a, a certain situation or a, a particular group of people. It's about one singular person. The entire gospel is about the person and narrative of Jesus Christ. John's entire intention, our gospel writer's entire intention, is to introduce you to Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus in the flesh, as the logos, the word, the light, the life of God. John's entire desire is that you might know Jesus, that we as his readers might know Jesus, which makes my job incredibly simple. As we work through this text, I just want you to see Jesus. And he spends the entire first chapter setting up a very intentional account, an eyewitness account, of, if you will, of who Jesus is. He doesn't start his gospel like the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they start with birth narratives and genealogies and how Jesus came to be. John starts with a movement of theology. He wants you to understand that Jesus isn't just some mere human walking around the Judean countryside, but he himself is God in the flesh. He is God. He was from the beginning. And so John starts off by saying Jesus is the logos of God, the very word of God. He calls him the light and the life and creator. And John sets up this theological narrative that says this is no ordinary man. And John puts himself right in the picture. As an eyewitness account, he talks about how he has spent time with Jesus. And so from the onset, we're going to learn that Jesus is wholly different than everyone else. And that this is the Jesus that John wants us to know. And so for the past few weeks, we've kind of spent some time unpacking those theological truths. And then last week, we were introduced to John the Baptist. And Brandon spent quite a bit of time talking about John the Baptist and, and what he was proclaiming and his role. And John the Baptist and John, our gospel writer, you've got to remember, are two totally different people. 
right? John the Baptist had one singular purpose. It was to declare, to witness, to testify to the coming Messiah. That is John's foretold purpose. It was the whole reason he existed. In fact, we refer to him as John the Baptist because we're, he's known by the activity he had in the Jordan River where he was baptizing people for repentance to, to make way for the coming kingdom of God. Uh, in fact, he baptized Jesus himself. But really, John's role was not as a baptizer. It was as a witness. John came to testify to the coming Messiah, to point the world to the fact that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, was coming. And John the Gospel writer introduces us to John the Baptist, or John the Witness, uh, last week, and we talked about his proclamation of Jesus being the Lamb of God and all those kind of things. So we've been introduced to Jesus in the incarnation, right? God in the flesh, and we've been introduced to John the Baptist. And this morning, we are going to see the beginning of relationships that Jesus makes with his first disciples as he begins to walk with them over a three-year period that's going to ultimately lead them to a place where they will give up their very life to follow Jesus. So we're in the book of John, uh, chapter 1, and we will start off this morning in verse 35. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn there. And if not, you can grab one out of the little row in front of you or just kind of follow along with me and I'll read it. But let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we will dive into our text together. God, what a privilege it is to gather together and open your word. What a joy it is for us to be able to look at these things together, to explore them. God, to allow you to uh, move in our hearts, to write them upon our hearts, to move in us. God, to draw us closer to you, to expose our sin, to, God, give us redemption and freedom and grace. Lord, we take our time in your word very seriously. We believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. God, this is not just some arbitrary book that's some kind of guidepost for our life. It is your very word, the theopunestos, the, the little breathed out word of God. And God, we pray that you would teach our hearts through it. Take a moment and just pray for yourself. Just pray that God would teach you something. Even if you think that's a little weird or you're just kind of visiting with us, just we invite you to just pray that God would teach you something. And take a moment and pray for someone around you or beside you or in front of you. We do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Remembering that this moment on Sunday morning is not about me only, but there are people in here that we want God to move in their lives. And so just pray for someone else, even if you don't know their name. Just ask that God would move in them this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask that you would teach our hearts through your word, that, God, you would instruct us and reveal truth to us. We can't discover you on our own. You you take initiation with us, and, God, you reveal yourself. So, Lord, we pray that you would teach our hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in John chapter 1, verse 35, and we're going to look at the calling of the first disciples. And and actually, it's kind of a a mystery. I don't know, I don't really love that title. These titles were added later. But it's ultimately going to take a little bit of time for Peter to actually let go of his fishing life and business and nets and all that and actually follow Jesus. But this is Peter's first introduction to Jesus. So Peter, Simon Peter, who we're going to meet, Andrew, and another unnamed disciple who uh, most scholars believe is actually John himself. So let's meet these these folks in uh, verse 135 all the way down through 42. The next day, John was there again with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. 
When the two disciples heard him say that this, heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he said, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Simon, Andrew Peter's brother, was one of the two that heard that John, uh, what John had said, and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to go and find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. So we see this interaction happen that's going to be really important for later on in church history. In fact, those of you who have been with us for a few years as we unpack the book of Acts will know how important Simon or Peter is in the life of church history and the life of the gospel story. So John is setting us up to introduce us to a couple of really important people, people that are going to actually, God is going to use to change the course of church history. And he starts off by saying, John the Baptist was out in the wilderness doing his thing, speaking to a crowd. This is the third successive day in John chapter 1 that, that the writer, gospel writer, has told us that John the Baptist is out in the wilderness teaching crowds of people. He's taught his own disciples, he's taught crowds of Pharisees, and now he sits, seems to be there again with a few of his disciples out there doing his thing and baptizing and, and proclaiming that Jesus was coming, talking about the coming Messiah. And he's out there doing just that when Jesus walks by again. Now, Brandon talked a little bit about this last week because the same thing happened. The day before, John was out there baptizing and Jesus came over and, and basically John says, look, the Lamb of God. And you remember that that title is, it's a messianic proclamation. It's a title of the Passover Lamb into Isaiah 53. It's a, a proclamation that Jesus is not just some traveling rabbi, but that he is God's anointed one, the, the Messiah, right? It's a proclamation. And so he says, look, the Lamb of God. And two of John's disciples, because John had his own band of disciples, and Jesus didn't have any at this point in time, it was just Jesus, they get up, right? Andrew, who we learn, and then the unnamed one. Now, a lot of scholars actually believe that the unnamed disciple is actually John, the gospel writer himself, who actually remains completely unnamed in the gospel. John never refers to himself by name in his own, own gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Well, a lot of people believe that this unnamed disciple is actually John, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and he gives some eyewitness accounts, and there's a lot of details in there that kind of point us to that. No way to know for sure, but it's an, it's an interesting idea that just maybe John, our gospel writer, was originally a disciple of John the Baptist, and he and Andrew were standing there when Jesus walked by, and John the Baptist said, look, there is the Lamb of God. Well, Andrew gets up, and this unnamed disciple gets up, and they turn, and they just go to start following Jesus because John the Baptist had just told him that here comes the Messiah, the one that God has been telling us about in Scripture, the one that I have been proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. And he stands up, Andrew and this unnamed disciple, and they follow Jesus. Well, Jesus stops, and he turns to him, and he says, what do you want? And they say, uh, where are you staying?" Where are you abiding? And uh, he says, well, come and see. 
And so they follow him. It seems like a rather odd exchange, right? I mean, they're kind of going back and forth. What do you want? Where are you staying? Come and see. But John, our gospel writer, is using very intentional discipleship words. These are words of discipling. These are words of following and giving up, which is what we know about a discipling relationship in those days, that when you followed someone, whether it was John the Baptist or, in this case, Jesus, you literally gave up your own way of life, and you were abiding with them. You were staying with them. And so what they were essentially saying is, where are you going and staying? Because we want to go and stay there also. In other words, we want to be with you. So Jesus says, what do you want? And they say, we want to learn, be with you. Where are you staying? And Jesus says, come, I will show you. They're very uh, intentional discipleship framed words. That what's happening here is Jesus is drawing these men into his own discipleship group. He is moving in them and drawing them in. And he says, come and I will show you. So it says that they went with him and they stayed and spent the entire day. And it was about the 10th hour, which is about 4 p.m. because they started counting hours at 6 a.m. So if you do the math there, you get to four. So it's about 4 a.m. They are four in the afternoon. They've spent the entire day with Jesus. Well, in verse 49, we learn that something has transpired in that day that we are not told about. So either Jesus' teaching or his words or their actions or something is so magnificently stirred the heart of Andrew that he is thinking to himself, I need to go find my brother. My brother needs to meet this Jesus, right? Now, I wish we had a transcript of what unfolded from the moment they followed Jesus to that time, but it it must have been a pretty amazing day of just sitting and listening to the Lord, right? Well, Andrew says, I need to find my brother, Simon. He needs to hear this. So he gets up immediately at once, they say, and he goes and he finds his brother and he shows up to Simon, who is most likely drying out fishing nets from the day. It was in the afternoon. And he says, we have found the Messiah, right? We have found the Christ, Now, the word Messiah is the Hebrew word. It means the anointed one. Christ is the Greek word uh, that means the anointed one. Christ was not Jesus' last name, right? It wasn't like Jesus, whatever, Christ. It was, no, I'm trepidator. It is Jesus, the anointed one. So Christ is actually a messianic title. It's a Greek word that means the anointed one. Well, Messiah means the exact same thing, but it's Hebrew. And and John is addressing both audiences that were reading this letter at the time. He is the anointed one, not to be mistaken with the one that was told about in Scripture. That is him. And he's also the Christ, right? Same person to the Greek. So he is Jesus, the Messiah. And and Andrew shows up in Simon's world and he says, we have found him, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that scripture has told us about. And it says that Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. And when he gets there, right, Jesus looks at him and he says, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which translated as Peter. So as soon as he arrives, Jesus looks right at Simon and he gives him this new name. He says, you will be called Cephas, right? Which is the Aramaic word for rock. Peter is the Greek word, Petros is the Greek word for rock. So John's doing the, the, both the Aramaic or the Hebrew and the, and the Greek. He's under, letting both audiences understand that Jesus is renaming Simon the rock, Right? Now, we know the significance of this because we've just journeyed through Acts and we know that Peter will become the, the, the pillar upon which Jesus builds the church, essentially. But we also know that Peter was, or that, uh, Peter was anything but a rock, right? He was unstable and he was 
uh, kind of a hothead, and he was going to deny Jesus multiple times. But Jesus looks at him in this moment, and he gives him this new identity. Now, names were huge in that time period. They were meant to kind of unveil part of your character. So you were named often after parts of your character, or often after times what God would tell people to name their children. And so names were incredibly important. And essentially what Jesus is looking at Peter as he's saying is he's saying, Simon, I'm giving you a new name, a new identity, a complete new understanding of who you are. You are now to be known as the rock which is really powerful because the only person that could rename someone is someone that had a higher authority than them. And so Jesus is exercising his authority and he's renaming Simon the Rock. Now, this is not an identity that he's going to come into right away. He's going to have to live into this identity under God's grace, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But this is what transpires. Now, what's going to happen is Peter's going to return to fishing, and then ultimately he's going to give up in a matter of weeks and just follow Jesus. But we begin to see these planting moments of discipleship that are happening. And John, our gospel writer, is very intentionally introducing us into some very important people. But I want to pay attention this morning to that little interaction at the end of that text where Andrew and Simon have this sort of connection. And I want to pay attention to that and I want to explore it just a little bit. I don't want to make too much out of it, but I want to, I want to explore it because something significant has happened to Andrew. Andrew has spent his time as a disciple of John the Baptist. He has been out there listening to John day after day after day after day talk about the one that was coming after him. There is one that is coming after me, one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, the Lamb of God, the coming of God himself. And then when John says, there he is, look, the Lamb of God, something in Andrew's heart says, I want to meet and follow and give my life to that person. So all the things that John has said, coupled with the interaction that Andrew has when he sees him, says, I want to follow you. When he starts following Jesus, and Jesus says, what do you want? And he says, I want to live where you live. Where are you staying? Is essentially what that means. I want to abide where you are. Well, in that small day, whatever that is, 8 a.m. to 4, 6 to 4, 10 to 4, whatever, in that day, that moment, something transpired in Andrew's heart and stirred him to this incredible place of saying, I want my brother to meet Jesus. I mean, it had moved him to the point where he said, Simon would love to meet this guy. He needs to meet Jesus. And it says that after he'd spent this day with him, at once he went and found his brother. Now, Andrew, as a disciple, probably would have wanted to spend the entire day with Jesus, never leave his side, but something was so stirring inside of him that said, I want my brother, who I love and I care for, who we are close with, and probably spent all this time growing up and fished together and all those things. I want him to meet Jesus. So I'm getting up right at this moment, and I'm going to go and find him. I don't know where he is. I'm going to go where I think he might be, but I'm going to go find him because I I am moved where he would meet Jesus. And you get the sense that there is this kind of feeling of urgency in Andrew's movements. It says that at once, the first thing Andrew did was to go and find his brother. I love this picture because Andrew is so deeply moved that the first thing he thinks about is, I want Simon to meet Jesus. Like, I I want him to meet Jesus. And there's this urgency in it. You know, we... 
we, we have a lot of urgency about things in our life, right? We have urgency about bills or school or stuff that needs to get done or punctuality or whatever. But, but we very rarely have a sense of gospel urgency, right? I mean, Andrew didn't even really know the depth of who Jesus was and what it would mean to actually give up his life and follow him. But he was so stirred by Jesus that he just said, no matter what it takes, I want to find Simon. You and I know who Jesus is. He has rescued and redeemed our hearts. We have surrendered our life to him. He has taken us from death to life, literally from sin to being alive in him. We know that the eternal balance hangs in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And yet we have zero gospel urgency in our lives, especially for people that we love. For most of us, it takes one, two, three, four years at best for us to even invite someone to church. And church has about as much to do with your salvation as riding a bike. Right? It's just a building with stuff and words. Without Jesus stepping into our hearts, there's nothing. And yet we know this about Jesus, and we know about hell, and we know about heaven, and we know that God, through the person of Jesus Christ, is offered to rescue and redeem as a sacrifice for our sin. We hold the keys to eternal life, and we sit on our hands because we don't want to offend someone by talking about Jesus. There's no gospel urgency. But as I was reading this, I thought, man, how much Andrew must have loved his brother Simon to say, I want Simon to meet Jesus. And the people in our lives, our moms or our dads or our, our daughters or our sons or our brothers or sisters or even our coworkers that we've worked with for years are dying without Jesus, spiritually, physically dying without Christ. And we have no sense of gospel urgency, no sense that says, I just want you to know Jesus. Like, I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the intricacies. I don't know how everything works. But I just know that Jesus has done something in me that's changed me, and I want so-and-so to know him. It drove Andrew away out of that circle to go and find his brother. How many of us have people in our lives that we know that we desperately want them to know Jesus? And yet we hold that key, and yet we're so afraid of actually opening up our mouths And what's amazing is most of us can talk to a stranger about Jesus. We can travel across the world, go hut to hut in Africa, which we've done, or door to door in China, all these places, but I can't talk to my sister. How can that be? The people that we love dearly the most in our lives are dying without Jesus, and we won't because we're afraid speak to them. But I'll go to a stranger, and I'll knock on a door, I'll go to the church in the park, and I'll invite them to come and hear the gospel but I can't broach the the subject with my own family, the people that that are closest to me. I mean, that irony is painful because it's true in my own life, right? I mean, it's true in my own life. But the first thing that Andrew does is he says, I've got to find my brother. Who in your life do you believe you want to go and find? Like, I want this person to meet Jesus. That's what's stirring in Andrew's heart. So he gets up and he goes to find his brother. And when he finds him, right? When he finds him, he explains the reality of who they just found. 
So he goes to Peter. He finds him most likely drying his fishing nets, doing his thing that he's doing at four in the afternoon. He finds him and he basically says, you're not going to believe what has happened. We, me and this unnamed guy, maybe John, we have found the Messiah, the one, the anointed one, the Christ. We have found him. They got to, to Peter and Andrew said, Simon, I want to tell you who we found. I want to tell you about Jesus. There's a, a longing that happens in my heart. The people that I love dearly that I want to know Jesus. And there's a disconnect between my desire for them to know Jesus and my willingness to talk about Jesus. And I think most of us exist in that place. We have a deep desire and longing. And we, we even will spend a lot of time with them. But when it comes to, to actually talking about the person of Jesus Christ, you're looking at someone and saying, listen, I know this sounds crazy, but I want to tell you about the God that has changed me. Most of us can't get that out of our mouths. And so we say this. We say that maybe I will just live in such a way where the gospel is demonstrated in me and they will see that in me. Right? And we use that phrase. Right? We say, I'm going to live faithful or I'm going to live more like this. I'm going to do this. And eventually that person will say, they will see Jesus in me. I'm an old man now, 40 plus, actually I'm 39 times a couple extras. No one in my entire life ever has walked up to me and said, Trev, I got to tell you something, man. Your life is so incredible. You got to tell me what's going on. Something's different. No, most people look at me and go, you are a disaster. How do I not be like you, right? The truth is, is that none of us are good enough. None of us, with all of the sin and garbage and mistakes and fears and anxieties and worries, none of us have a life that is going to stand there alone and people are going to look and say, unbelievable, tell me what is different about you. At some point in time, we have to talk about Jesus. At some point in time, spending time with that person, sitting by their bed, talking to them, walking through the most difficult times with them, you are going to come to a place where you have to say, I have found the Messiah, the one, the anointed one, and he has changed me. And we're petrified of that because we don't want to be seen as intolerant or we don't want to be seen as offensive or we don't want to be seen as whatever. But think about what hangs in the balance eternal life, and abundant, true, real life here on earth. Fulfilled, real, true life, and we are worried about whether or not someone will be offended. When you love someone, truly love them, and you tell them something out of your deep love for them, right? How offended would you be if that was you and they didn't tell you? The truth is, is that at some point in time in our lives, we have to talk about Jesus, and we can pray and ask God to give us the right times, but eventually we just need to talk about the Lord. And most of us are petrified of it, and I understand why. But if Jesus has really changed you, really turned your life upside down, really given you reason to draw breath, then the people around you need to hear that. And so Andrew goes and he finds his brother and he says, we have found the Messiah, the one, the Christ. And it wasn't enough to just tell Peter, right, or Simon. He wanted Simon to meet Jesus himself. So he goes and finds him. He explains the reality of who they find. And then it says that they brought him to Jesus. So Andrew shows up, tells his brother, and he says, but it's not enough for me just to tell you. You have got to meet this guy. 
Like, I've met him. I've heard his words. They've stirred my heart. He is the one, I assure you. But don't just take what I'm saying. I want you to meet him. I want you to know him for yourself. The driving heartbeat behind Andrew's movement to go and get Simon was that he wanted Simon to actually know Jesus himself. The driving heart behind our desire for the people in our lives, those Simons, those brothers, friends, relatives, cousins, moms, dads, sons, daughters, whatever, should be that we want them to know Jesus. I mean, it's my deep longing for my children, right? To not just know about the God I talk about. To not just be in a place where they're familiar with and understand that I talk about Jesus, but to know Jesus for themselves. Like I would trade every word I ever had for them to just know him intimately themselves. And so what Andrew's saying is, I want you to meet him. I will take you to where he is. That physical act of bringing is, you know, you can almost see Peter like, huh, really? I mean, I'm, let me finish this. And Andrew's like, no, you've got to come with me. It reminds me of the story of Charles Peace. He was a, uh, he was a, a really famous criminal in the 1800s in England. He had, a, uh, he had a whole burglary operation going, all kinds of stuff. But there's, there's a story about him that when he finally was caught in 1887, he was, he was basically sentenced to death and, and hung for the murder of, of an individual. But as he was walking, very famous person, walking to the gallows, they had this procession. And there was a pastor, a priest, walking in front of him reading scripture about hell and about Jesus. And the story goes that Charles Peace stopped and said, hey, pastor, preacher. He was, as he was listening to the read, he said, if you really believe, if you in the church really believe the words that you are saying right now, if that were me, I would walk across England on broken glass, on hands and knees if I must, and consider it worthy to save one soul from the hell that you are talking about. And remind me of that story to say, what lengths are we willing to go to to see somebody else meet Jesus? To actually bring them or to, to be involved in their life enough to where they might have their own relationship with Christ. What lengths would you go to? What lengths would you go to to share this gospel message with the world? More so, what lengths would you go with it to share with your own brother? I mean, it seems to me like if we really believe this stuff, it would be our first priority. Like, I just want my brother to know the Lord. Is what Andrew's saying. I just want him to meet Jesus. And yet I'm worried about my own comfort of being rejected. If we really believe this stuff, we not cross, call across the country on broken glass? We not stand on the rooftops and shout it at the top of our lungs? Why can't we find a voice with those that we love the most to say, I just want you to know about the God that has turned my life upside down. I want you to see him and meet him for yourself and not just hear my words because he changed me. Andrew is instrumental in the advancement of the church. Even though we don't hear from him a whole lot, he doesn't play a massive role. He brought Peter in to meet Jesus. And God used Peter to change the entire world. I'll wrap up with this. At the end of this, end of this text, right here, this chapter in verse 42, when, when Peter shows up in front of Jesus, right? I don't know what he was expecting. I mean, Andrew came and got him and told him they had met the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. 
But I don't know what, what Peter was expecting, but I can guarantee you he wasn't expecting this. He stands in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, you are Simon, son of John, right? That was his full name. You were either named by a character quality, or you were named by who you were related to, or the son of, right? And he was the son of John, Bar Yohan, what it is in Hebrew. He says, you will be called Cephas, rock, Peter, Petros, rock. I can guarantee you that Simon didn't expect to come up and have his name changed. It was a, a movement of authority, and it was a movement of identity. And what Jesus is doing is he's establishing a new identity in Simon from the onset. Now, I mentioned this earlier. Peter's not going to be able to live into this identity for years. In fact, he is going to be unstable and overbearing and outspoken, and he is going to deny Jesus to his face and behind his back. But ultimately, he will become the rock upon which the church is built. Not because Peter does anything, but because God gives him the grace to live into his identity. Jesus is giving Peter a brand new identity. He's saying, no longer are you Simon, but you have met me and I am changing you. And I will give you the grace to live into that new identity. You are now the rock. This isn't uncommon. I mean, name changes happen in Scripture all the time. And God looks at Abram and says, you are going to become Abraham. And he gives him a new identity. But ultimately, after Christ's death and resurrection, this is what he offers for all of us. He offers this to you and I. Complete and total new identities. We are no longer defined by our sin, our failure, our shortcoming, shortcomings, what we did last week, last month, last night. We are defined by the renewal of our hearts through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have become completely new creations, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If you're in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. The Bible is full of this re-identifying who you are in the person of Jesus Christ. It means you are no longer who you thought you were. That when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, he calls you his son, his daughter, heir to the throne, princes and princesses. He calls you his beloved. You are his. You belong to him. You have been renamed, re-identified, and remade. And most of us, most of us filling our churches have no clue about the new identity we've been given. Because if we did, these places could not contain us. If I understood that God has taken me from death to life, from literally living in sin and darkness and destruction to new life in Christ, why would I possibly right? Be living a joyless life, a life of mediocrity, a life in the middle, a passionless existence, because God has transformed, renewed me, remade me, set me on a new path, called me beloved, and given me a whole new identity. I am no longer the sum of my mistakes and my lies and my fears, but I've been renamed and set free in the person of Jesus Christ. These buildings should not be able to contain us. We should be running across the country shouting at the top of our lungs that we are new in Christ. And he offers that same promise to every single person who puts their faith and trust in him. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of what Jesus is offering Simon, a new existence and identity and way of life. If you are stuck, if you feel trapped and ensnared, and you have surrendered your life to Christ, you are living in a lie because you have been set free. We try and spend most of our time trying to free ourselves from something that we have already been set free from. And it's time to step out of the lies and begin to believe that we are worthy 
and that we are cared for and loved and adored by the God of the universe. And that alone should send us outside these doors to tell the entire world. I've said this time and time again, and I'll say it as I end here this this morning. The entire book of John is essentially this one message. God's saying to you, I love you, and I have come for you. And it should change us to the core of who we are. Andrew went, and he found his brother. He told him about Jesus, and he brought him back to meet the God that had changed his life. And Jesus looks at Simon, and he says, you are mine and I am giving you a completely new identity in me. Who in our life do we believe that God is calling us to go and get, to go and find, to go and tell, to bring back, to say, I want you to know the God that has changed me. And maybe in the core of all that, we need to come face to face with the reality that God has given you a complete new identity. You are no longer the expression of your fears and worries and anxieties and lies. You are no longer who you once were. You have been set free to the person of Jesus Christ and it's time to draw breath and begin to live in that truth that God loves you and he has come for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the time to gather this morning that you are incredible and that your story is exactly that, that you have loved us and you have come for us. God, we thank you that You have men like Andrew whose sole purpose is to be known by you and to be sent to draw Peter into a place where he will change the world. God, there are people in my life, and I know that there are of us sitting out here that have people like Simon in our lives that we love dearly. I mean, love dearly. But we know they need Jesus so bad. And God, we have sat on our hands. God, give us a sense of urgency a sense of desperation that they might come and know you, to to talk about Jesus, to draw them to a place where maybe, God, they would meet you. You would reveal yourself to them. We ask that you would give us opportunity. I ask for those of us sitting here this morning, God, that are praying for opportunity to talk to a brother or a mom or a dad or a son or a a stepson or whatever, God, that you you would give them opportunity. And you would fill them with boldness and joy. And let us speak about your incredible grace. And God, for those of us sitting here this morning like me who have had our identities all messed up by the world that are feeling lost or fearful or anxious or just wondering who we even are. For those of us that have bought into the lies, things that we look at when we see in the mirror that we know aren't from you, things that we believe about ourselves. God, I pray that you would give us that complete turnaround to help us understand that when we surrender our lives to you, Jesus, when we say, Jesus, take over my life and my heart, that you remake our identity, that we are no longer the expression of our failures, of our lack of faith, no longer the expression of our lies, of our mistakes, but you redeem us and you call us your beloved sons and daughters and you clothe us in your beauty and your righteousness and your grace. And God, you give us a new identity and then you give us the grace to live into that identity that we don't have to do it on our own. Peter was never going to figure out how to be the rock. But God, through your grace, you led him that way. And Lord, most of us will never figure out a way to truly live who we know you say we are, but you will lead us that way. So Lord, help us this morning by stop believing the lies, step out of the chains, and begin to live as free, redeemed people who are in love with the Messiah, 
the anointed one, the Christ, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Lord, you have loved us and you have come for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.